Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeremy Michelson. I'm the executive pastor here at Northwest Hills. A warm welcome. We are so glad you're here this morning. Uh, when we started into the James series, we, we heard about it, and my first response was, man, Mike, I would love to come teach James too. And to my fortune, uh, Pastor Mike is down in Arizona uh, doing a wedding of some dear, dear friends of his, and so uh, I get the opportunity to be here and share with you this morning, to which I could not tell you how excited I really am. So I want, James 2 is occasionally a bit of a misunderstood passage. And so, you know, misunderstandings are interesting. I have a couple misunderstandings from my own kids. It's kind of a, a little life fa- family folklore. You know, my daughter, when she was four years old, she, she'd ask us, hey, mom and dad, can you guys turn the sun on? Obviously, that was before we moved to Venezuela. <laughs> the, and my son, he was about four years old, and uh, he asked, came to us and asked us one day, uh, could I get a, a new clock in my bedroom? during nap time. And we asked, you know, like, what's going on here? And it's like, well, it goes too slow during nap time. <laughs> and so, you know, you have the misunderstandings, you know, some of them start out as, as fun child stories like that. When you get to be an adult, those misunderstandings are a little bit more dangerous. Uh, but, you know, the, with the Bible and spiritual misunderstandings, it's hard to fix those. You don't just grow out of those by yourself uh, like the, the children's misunderstandings might. But to grow out of spiritual misunderstandings, you have to dive in and study the Bible and study the Word of God. So that's what we're here to do this morning. And uh, we're, we're here in James 2, which I think is probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the entire Bible. So here's a, one famous verse. It says, uh, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And I'm hoping many of you guys have heard of Martin Luther, of uh, the 95 Theses, starting the Protestant Reformation, the starter of the Lutheran Church, uh, major figure in starting off this whole Protestant Reformation. He really struggled with this. And the reason why is he was a translator. And when he translated the, the Bible into German so that he'd be able to use it, the, he recognized a couple of these same words in another passage in Romans, in the Romans what Paul writes, for we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he's like, hey, the words of these are like the same Greek words. They're just like backwards. They're different. It's saying two different things. And it's a little bit, a little bit, of, a, uh, a little bit of controversy, a little bit of contradiction. And that, that gave him a little bit of a pause such that he, he really didn't like the book. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the kind way of saying it. He really didn't. In fact, in his notes of his translation, it's like, hey, this, this book doesn't even belong in the Bible. This is how strongly he felt about it. And so, you know, and many skeptics, you know, you go Google online, Bible contradictions. Um, you know, folks struggle with contradictions. So, so I think it's really important to dive in deep and figure this out. So this is, what, this is what Martin Luther thought on the subject. He thought that there wasn't anything about the nature of the gospel in it. He thought, you know, it's old writings, there might be some value to it, but he didn't think it had anything to do with the gospel. And so that, that's kind of challenging. Hey, Mr. Martin Luther, we love you a lot. We love you for starting the Protestant Reformation, but you don't like the book of James. Like, what's up with that? Uh, and so this, this here is the key question that, uh, that Martin Luther was wrestling with, that the Reformation was wrestling with, and I think it applies today just as much as it did 500 years ago. And so here's the question. How is a person justified or legally declared righteous before God? How do you, how do you enter into a relationship with God? And there's a couple options out there. There's one option that says that it's commonly taught that it matters what you do. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then, hey, yep, you're going to go to heaven. That's all great. That's, that's one view that's out there. Uh, we would teach something a little bit different here. We would teach 
faith is the way that you approach God, that, we, that there's, not, there's not enough good stuff that I could ever do, that it is entirely based on the promise that Jesus offers to us, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we believe that it's by faith, not by works. And there's a third view that sometimes people have, which they just smash those two options together and say, well, hey, it matters what you do, and it matters what you believe, and you have to get both right. Okay, so that's the third view. So this morning we're going to process through these, these views, and... Here's, here's Martin Luther's take on it. Uh, justification is by faith alone. Our works add nothing whatsoever uh, to our justification. And we have no merit to offer God that in any way enhances our justification. So to this, Mr. Martin, I, I agree with you, Martin. I agree 100% with that. I just don't think you need to throw the book of James out to get to that. Okay? So here, here's this morning in a nutshell. We're going to talk about this, this contradiction. I don't think so. I think James 2 is a super practical challenge to us believers to put their faith into practice, okay? So that's the big picture. That's what, we're, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Here's a little bit of big picture context to wrap that up. Um, the, the people he's writing to, James is writing to, this is actually one of the first books of the New Testament. So you, you read about in Acts the persecution that happened when the Jews originally believed the gospel. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. The rest of the Jews around them, they didn't think that was so great, and so they started getting kicked out of the synagogue. When you got kicked out of the synagogue, you also got ostracized from your community. So that means people wouldn't do business with you. Uh, you'd be kicked out of your family. You would just, it, life was rough. And it wasn't such that you just throw everything in a moving van and move across to the other side of town or the next state over, the next country over. Like everything, that was your livelihood. The social connections that you had, um, your farm, your, your setup, that was an immense persecution that people were fleeing for their lives, and it was heavy. Okay, so these Jewish believers that James is writing to are under heavy persecution, trials. They're 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 digging in. Okay, and I think it's important to see that uh, that that dynamic was going on there for these believers. Okay, so we're going to jump in, and I want to I really want to talk about James two twenty four. But to talk about that, we're going to wind all the way back up to James two fourteen and kind of talk through kind of the, the big picture, the kind of the context for what we what Martin Luther struggled with. Okay, so if you have a Bible, gr- grab it, open up to James two. I'll have everything on the screen because I'm a very visual person, so I hope you enjoy that with me here. Uh, but James two fourteen says, "What use is it, brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works?" Can that faith save him? Okay, so the first question here, or the first thing I want to point out, is this word use. I think it's a key word for this entire passage. Is, and it, is, is it has a financial connotation. It's a, what profit or what benefit is it, um, brethren? And it really, I, I, in modern terms, I think of it as return on investment. And it is really tied very closely to what Jesus taught in the parables of uh, storing up treasures in heaven and what we're how are we going to be found as a good steward? So it's a stewardship issue is really the, the core thought that's going on here. So profit, benefit, usefulness, return on investment. What use is it? The next thing, obviously, is brethren. And this, this is a, you know, your Bible, your Bible might say brothers and sisters. It might say brothers. But that, that is just a kind of a New Testament phrase that means believers. So these Jewish believers, they, are already, they had already believed the gospel. And so he's challenging them um, about this works. Okay, and so there's this, this rhetorical question, which built right into the language is a negative. The answer is no. Can that faith save him? The answer is no. Built, and that's built in right into the Greek language itself. The answer is no. The big thing, and this is something I think many, many, many Reformation authors and theologians struggled with, is they saw that word save, and they 
automatically put in there saved from sin, as in like go to heaven. And that was that was what when when Martin Luther read through this, that's what he saw there, and he struggled a little bit with that. And you have, the word "saved" is a huge um, semantic range. It has a very very broad usage, just as it is in English. You know, you might serve save your Microsoft Word documents. You might go to the grocery store, not buy name brand, use coupons, and save some money. Uh, you might uh, be playing a, a sport, and you, you save the goal you know, in soccer or something like that. So the word save doesn't mean a whole lot until you connect it to its context. Save, save from what? And so as we study here this morning, I want you to see for yourself what is the context. What are we getting saved from here in, Romans two, or in James 2.14? Okay, so a little example time. Uh, James is super practical. So he makes a statement. He immediately does, turns around and gives us an example. So he says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Okay, so super practical. You have some, you have some needs. And again, these believers dealing with this intense persecution that left them out of their homes, this was an easy visible thing for them to see all the time. And there's this question of, well, how useful is that? And how useful is it if someone has a need and we don't meet it? And the answer is, well, it's extremely not useful uh, to say, be warm, to be filled, but not share food or share home. So not useful at all is really the answer to that question. So therefore, James says, even so faith, when it's not working, is dead. And you know what dead is? Dead is extremely not useful. (laughs) Okay, so that is the ultimate in unprofitability is to be dead. So it does you no good, does no one any good to be dead. So, so even so, faith, when it has no works, is dead, is useless, it's all by itself. And so then James continues, and he, has, this is a, he starts a little argument here with himself. And, but someone may well say, well, well who's this someone? This someone is a, it's a Greek rhetoric tool called a, a diatribe. Uh, or an objector. It's basically this little argument you'd have with yourself so as to bring out some information to, to prove a point. It's super common. You can read all through. Tons of Greek literature has this diatribe conver- rhetoric tool. It, it pops up a couple different places in the Bible. You can, you can read and learn about it, but it's, it's an argument with yourself. So don't read the argument and think that's what it should be saying because the argument is actually opposite of what James is trying to teach. So this is what the objector, the diatribe, says. You have faith, James, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And he goes on to say, you believe that God is one. This is James. You do well. Good job, James. Uh, the demons also believe, and they're just shuddering. So here, here's what the objector is trying to convince James of, is that works do not show a person's faith. That's what the objector is trying to point out. And here's, here's the logic of it. James, you, he has faith. He does good works. Good job. So that's kind of poster child. This is what's supposed to happen. You have faith. You have works. Good job. The second side of the poster child over here is the demons. And they believe in God. They believe he's one. They don't have any works. They only shudder. Okay? So there's the contrast. And so that's the argument is basically there's not a one-to-one correlation is what the objector is saying. There's not a one-to-one correlation between faith and works. And so the implication of that then, well, why are works even necessary? And all that, that's the objective. That's what's not true. And this is, that's why immediately following it, are you so, are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? And this is, again, a super classic Greek 
diatribe structure, this calling the, this objector the fool is kind of your hint that, yes, this is, this is not James writing. This is uh, him writing in this argumentative style. Uh, so that, this, that, of course, that's a foolish position to think that faith and works are not connected. Faith without works is useless, is what James is really, is, is again, it's back to the same concept that faith without works is useless. So that's the, the little diatribe argument there. And again, James is super practical. He has another example, and I think this example is so key. If, if, you will, if you can track with me just a little bit longer to see this example of how this all worked in Abraham's life, I think it'll, it'll answer the question of what James is really talking about. So in verse 21, James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, this, this happens in Genesis 22. And without going into all the details, God kind of gives Abraham a test to take his son uh, and sacrifice him. And you, you really have to go read the story if you're not familiar with it. But it's a, it's a big test in his life. And Abraham does it successfully. And, and his son is spared. There's a, a substitutionary ram. It's a great story. Um, but he, he follows through with it. So continuing in verse 22, you see that Abraham's faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So this happens, this promise, this piece of scripture that he's referring to, is actually all the way back in Genesis 15. So we want to pause here for a second. Look at the timeline of what's going on here. And this, I think this is really important. In the very beginning of Abraham's life, as he met God, and God made a covenant with Abraham. God made, made a promise to him that you're going to be a blessing to all the nations, that you're going to have a child. Uh, and Abraham believed this covenant. He, he believed what God said was true, and God credited it to him as righteousness. And if you go to Romans 4, you can see a super ex- thought out, explained, explained very clearly that um, that Abraham was declared righteous before God on the basis of that exact faith. That was the moment in Abraham's life when he became a believer. Okay? But then there's some details that happen between that moment and then this, this culmination that James talks about of this sacrifice of Isaac. Well, what happens in between those few periods of time? Woo. There's Ishmael. So this is when Abraham tried to accomplish the covenant in his own works by by Hagar. So that's one little, not so much a faith opportunity. Uh, God comes back and gives him another promise about Isaac. And then there's, uh, there's the whole deal with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, and that was not such a great opportunity there. And then you have Abimelech and Sarah. And if you're not familiar with that story, this is where Abraham tries to pass off his wife as his sister to avoid some issues with kings. And it's complicated. You can go read it in, in Genesis 20. But, you know, like many of us, Abraham had some ups and downs in his faith walk. There were some things that he did really great, and there's some times where it wasn't so great. So, but and through all this, Abraham was growing. He was maturing. His faith was growing. And such that when we get to this, um, when he's talking to Isaac, and there's that moment there at the altar, Hebrews gives us a little insight into what Abraham was thinking. Abraham knew that God had the power of raising people back to life. And so in his mind, he was going to go offer the sacrifice and that God was going to raise Isaac back to life. His faith had grown to the point where he was willing to um, see loss happen because he trusted God. Okay? And as a result of that act, Abraham is known as the friend of God. And to this day, 3.5 billion people on this planet believe that Abraham was a friend of God. You have the Jews, the Christians, the Muslims. Many people recognize that Abraham 
was a friend of God because of his faithfulness in his actions. And that's, that's the key thing. This, this friend of God is not a friend between God and Abraham. This is that people would recognize that Abraham is a friend of God. So let me go back and read that same passage and let me explain a little bit more detail now that you see the big picture outline. So Abraham's worth, excuse me, Abraham's faith was working with his works and the result of that works, faith was perfected. It was uh, matured. It was, it was grown. That's what that word per, uh, perfected means is that uh, it had come to its completion. It had grown up all the way and the scripture was fulfilled. So his, his initial faith had grown up all the way. And Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteous, and he was called the friend of God. This here, this friend of God, this is James's goal for us in this entire, in this whole little example here, is that we would be known, that people would know that we have a relationship with God, and that would be publicly visible. Okay? And so now we get here, there's all the backstory. Here's, the, again, the verse that Martin Luther so struggled with uh, in verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so the justification here is the justification before people, being, being seen as righteous on the basis of other people, not, not of God. So it's a different context than that. Is. And there's a little hint in here. Because James was written before Romans, we actually have this, this little nugget that Paul stuck in there that I think really helps us understand this. So in, in Romans 4.2, as he's getting ready to explain how Abraham was declared righteous on the basis of faith, he throws this in. It says, if Abraham was justified by works, well, was Abraham justified by works? Yeah. James just said that he was justified by works. So yes, he was. Okay. He has something to boast about, but not before God. And that's the key, is that the justification that is talked about in James is a justification before men. The justification that Paul talks about in Romans is before God. And there are two different justifications. And so... The, the, the skeptic, so this is the, the question that you kind of boil down to is, well, how is a person justified or shown righteous before men? Well, what, what is the basis? Is it works? Is it faith alone? Is it faith plus works? It's easy. It's works. People can't see your heart. Like you walk around like, hey, you're talking to someone. Like they, don't, they can't see what you believe. That's inside your head. That's in your heart. You can't see a person's faith. You can see what they do. Like your works, that is the visible part. For Abraham to have believed, it wasn't until he acted on it that people could see that he was a friend of God. Okay, the other half of that, uh, if you look at the Romans part of this, uh, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And just a couple of verses later, one of my personal favorite verses here, in Romans 4, 5, the one who does not work, does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So the, and so this, back to this, this age-old Reformation era question, what is, how is it that a person is justified or legally declared righteous before God? Well, it's on the basis of faith alone. That is the basis in which we are made right with God, and it has nothing to do with our works. There, it's on the basis of faith without works. Okay? So here's you know, the, you know, the skeptic out there. And man, if you're a skeptic here today, we are so glad you're here. I remember being a skeptic showing up at church and, and learning the Bible. And that's where, where else are you going to go and learn these spiritual truths? So man, we're so glad you're here today. Um, but the truth is, is, there's not a contradiction here. There's two different justifications being talked about. There's the justification before God and there's the justification before men. And so that's, that's why these two passages are apparently contradictory. But are, and when you get into the details, they're not. 
Okay, so a couple applications or principles to take from this. The first, if, if you're a skeptic here, again, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Um, from this, I hope you can see that, at least in this passage, the Bible is internally consistent, meaning that it logically fits together. There's not one part that says something the other part disagrees with. Uh, there's a consistency. And despite the fact that you can go Google you know, a list of contradictions, um, they're like this contradiction. They, if you dig into the details, you'll see there's actually not a conflict it's just two different things, the same words talking about different angles of things. So the Bible is internally consistent, and I think it's an important bit of truth. The other one is, of course, just very practically, a person is made righteous based on faith. When the person understands that we're a sinner, that we, we fall short of God's standard, um, and that we, we can trust that he has paid the price for our sins when we trust that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. It's, it's the gospel. It's super simple, um, but it's on the basis of faith not on the basis of works, not on the basis of faith plus works. It's on the basis of faith. Okay, so my second application that I wanted to share with you is for those who are relying on a combination of faith and works. Okay, and I, I think it manifests itself in two different ways. Okay, the first way it manifests itself is through a person's uh, lack of assurance. And what that means is a person says, I think I'm saved, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm going to go to heaven or not. And normally if you ask a couple more probing questions, well, why are you not sure? Well, I'm not sure if I've done enough good things. Or if I'm not sure that I really prayed the right prayer. Or I'm not sure I... The list could be quite long, but I think on all those answers, you're not sure of something. And what you're not sure of is if faith alone is enough. And the truth of the matter is that faith alone is enough. And if you're trying to combine it with something else, that's, that's the mistake. So the encouragement is, the exhortation is that God accepts you on the basis of faith by itself. The second way that uh, folks who are kind of struggling with merging the two comes out in this concept of security. And a security is basically the idea that you could do something, that you know you're saved right now, but there's something I could do in my life later on that could cause me to then lose what, what was given to me freely. And um, th- there's nothing you can do to lose something that was given to you freely. If you're thinking that there's something you could do, then you're thinking that there's something that you contributed. And when we come to faith in Christ we don't contribute something to the, the equation. It's not, hey, Jesus died for my sins, and now I'm going to pay my, this other part of my sins. Instead, that's, that's, not the, that's not what the Scripture teaches at all. And it teaches that it is entirely based on what Christ did and not based on what we do. So it's based on, we, it's based on our faith alone. And so whether you struggle with assurance, whether you struggle with security, but this, this concept of faith and works they're, they're both important. We just saw that James said, they're, man, it's useless to have faith without works. And that's very true for believers. But if you are an unbeliever, faith without works is incredibly valuable. Um, okay, so then this, this final application is actually, I think, the, the, this is the actual application of James 2. It's for believers, believers who have been justified by God on the basis of faith alone. And there's two big things I want you to walk away here with. First is be justified before people by works. Let your faith be put into practice. Let your faith be put into practice by what you do. People cannot see your faith on the inside if it's not coming out on the outside. Let your faith be useful. Be that faithful servant who is going to work and do. And that's, that is the message of James 2. I want to invite up one of my friends here, and I have a quick little, I think they're doing a good job of this. So Bruce, why don't you come back on up here?
a little mini interview of what it looks like putting faith into practice. Okay, when, how long have you been here at Northwest Hills, and how did we meet? Uh, since about 2003, and you and I met at the men's Bible study on Friday mornings. Okay, so just a normal Friday morning group here. Um, and I know we, God kind of got your attention. We were studying in the book of in Corinthians, and uh, what, what, did, what did you catch? Uh, the thing I got from Second Corinthians with the group was um, uh, God wants us to share the light, share, share the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, one way to do that is um, consider yourself an ambassador mm-hmm. um, and do that. That has to happen through relation, relationship. Relationships, super critical. Yeah. You know, making, making those connections. Um, so how did, how did you, after kind of learning this, the, these principles, ambassadorships, relationships, what happened next? Um, I sat around a long time figuring out what that meant, um, trying to figure out how to do that. And I came across my notes from that time, so I'll just read those out. It seemed at the time to be really complicated and strange and unappealing, but what I found what it was, uh, was it was pretty simple. Um, be aware of others. Be aware of them in your everyday life, in places like the lunchroom, the hallway, the parking lot, the cube, wherever you are. Have conversations. Try to be intentional about it. Uh, learn about others. Uh, really, truly try to be interested in them and mm-hmm. not just in ourselves. Um, listen. Ask questions. And sometimes when they're talking, say nothing. Uh, keep up with the relationship after the seed is planted and, and try to keep, keep those things going. And then my thought... Uh, at that time was that was all I knew and I wrote to myself uh, the next steps are unknown Um, and each case uh, at least at work where we formed a Bible study group on Friday mornings is that um, we don't know the next steps we're just meeting together we're studying the word and um, we're looking at other ideas for bringing um, non-believers into the group and just interacting with people and that was about it taking time with people was it scary? Um, yes, um, but also not as scary and as complicated as I thought. As the conversations formed, things will start to come to you, or at least they did with me, and it, it, it turned out that this was how um, uh, what you're talking about expressed itself in my life, but other people might have other ways that that would come out. Okay. Thank you, Bruce. Yeah. Give him a round of applause there. I think of Bruce's example of bringing his faith in his conversations with people, this relational focus into his workplace is such an encouraging. I want to just commend you, uh, Bruce, for taking the time and effort to do that. Uh, I think James here, the, the other big application from this whole thing is, is teaching us a strategy. This, for James, he was teaching the strategy for this pre-Christian culture, this culture where you live in where no one else around you wants to hear about Jesus uh, where if you talk about Jesus, you kind of get ostracized from the community. That was, that was the life of the, uh, of the believers that James was writing to. And I wonder sometimes if that's not so different than our period of time now. If I wrote a, this, this amazing advertisement and put it in the paper and emailed it out, put it on Instagram, we could tweet it. Uh, we write everyone that we know here in Benton County and say, hey, come hear about Jesus Christ at the fairgrounds next week. How many people do you think would show up? You know, almost no one. 
maybe. And the reason why is that our culture, we're in a point in time now where people aren't super interested in hearing about it. And so I think that drives us to a different strategy. And again, it's not a new strategy. This is, this is James's strategy, is that we do good. When you do good deeds, when you do good works, people are able to see your faith in, in, at work. And you build those relationships. When you, when you spend time with those neighbors, you spend time with those coworkers, when you're that person, you know, whether it's a shoulder to cry on, helping them with their irrigation system, it doesn't really matter what it is, but that intentional taking of time and doing good develops goodwill. People, people develop trust. They, they understand who you are. They, they have a feeling of goodwill that gives you an opportunity when God moves in their own life. When they, you know, they suffer some loss, they suffer a financial loss, they, they, they're getting divorced, or they, they have a baby, or some other shock in life that God can sometimes use to grab our attention. When you have people around you that you have this goodwill with and you've seen they've been, they've been doing well, you know they are a believer, that is the natural place then where you're able to share the good news. And so that, that, that good works develops into goodwill, which then gives us an opportunity to share the good news. This is James's strategy. This is why he wanted people to be known as the friend of God, why he wanted to see the believers doing good, is so that they would be visible in their communities, that they'd be identifiable as believers. And so I think that is, and that's a big picture strategy that I think is a church that we will adopt and be working toward, although way more than any program that we could do as a big corporate entity, you can do so much more as an individual. Taking the time, one-on-one, talking to people, being a good neighbor, loving people, doing well, developing goodwill, developing those relationships so you can share the good news. That's what, that is what James is asking us to do, and it's what we should be doing. So there's, there's our faith and work together strategy. Uh, and I want to invite the worship team to come back up. There's some cost associated with this. And the cost is, uh, it takes time. You know, one, one personal example of the way that I'm doing this, I'm a very much an introverted person. It's hard for me to get out and hang, hang out with people. And so one thing I did for myself is my, my little neighborhood district, uh, we, have, we formed a road district because of maintaining the roads. And so I, was, I ran for an elected position, one and so I worked with all, several of my neighbors uh, to help keep our roads paved. Well, and for me, it's just this natural time to interact with all my neighbors. Hey, we're getting ready to pave your road, or we're doing this, we're doing that. So it's just, and what that all takes is time. I'm a fairly busy person uh, from time to time, and I would love to be spending time with my, my kids, my wife, and this family, but taking time to engage with people and do good, it, there's a cost associated with it. So I just want to encourage and kind of challenge you a little bit to, to take the time it takes to build those relationships. Um, and there is a and I also want you to take advantage of the resources here. We have these little prayer cards and the, the seat pockets in front of you or the sides there. We would love to be praying with you. We'd love to be praying for your coworkers. We'd love to be praying for your neighbors. If there's things that are going on, like, hey, man, I could use some help with this, or, hey, we could do this, uh, we would love to be working together as a whole church, reaching out to our neighbors. And so I just want to encourage you to grab one of those, share a prayer request. Uh, we'd like to be doing this together. The song that the, the team's going to play here in a moment is uh, it's a song that got my attention when I was in college. And uh, I, was, I was living for myself. I had a dream of being an astronaut and going to Mars, making a name for myself. It was all dandy. Um, however, I, I got to know Jesus, and I realized there's something different. He wanted to invest in people. And so this song is something that kind of got my attention to re- help me focus 
some time and energy on people. And that, that uh, so I ended up going on a kind of a short-term mission trip down to Mexico City. I was about there for three or four months. Uh, it was transformative in my own life because I took the time and that faith grew. And there was a growing process. That, that little initial spark of, hey, I should get involved with people here. And that grew and served. And, you know, 10 or 15 years later, when it came time to say, hey, God wants you to go to an overseas country and to sell your house, to quit your good engineering job, and go into ministry, I had felt that growth. I'd seen the experience. I'd moved on to a point where I could say, yes, it's time to go serve. And so no matter where you're at, no matter what God is asking you to do, I just want to encourage you to count the cost. Think of the return on investment from an eternal perspective to get engaged. So I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll get going. Uh, Father God, Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word that we can study, James, that we can see how much you want us to be visible, that you want our works to be seen by people, that we would be able to develop a goodwill in our community uh, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. Uh, And so from that goodwill, Lord, that we would have the opportunity to Uh, share the good news. And uh, Lord, I just pray for our church. Lord, just as a big body here, Lord, we love Corvallis. We want to have every opportunity to uh, speak well of you and to uh, share your word. So I just pray for our city, Lord, that we would be uh, your ambassadors, as Bruce uh, was so reminded in Corinthians. Um, So Lord, I just pray for our body that we would be your people. Thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.